What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. Well, good morning, Park Church. Go ahead and find your seat for me and grab your Bible. This morning we'll be reading from Psalm 130. As always, it's a joy to be joy to be with you this morning, and uh, I don't know what burdens and joys you're bringing with you today, but I know the Lord wants to meet you in those spaces. So if you will, read with me in Psalm 130 as we prepare our hearts for the word that he has for us today. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. So we're in the second week of Advent, which these candles represent the second week. First week and the second week. Last week we looked at peace. This week we're looking at hope. Then we'll look at both love and joy and talk about how Christ brings those into our life in the midst of the pain in the midst of the challenges, in the midst of the dissonance. And so uh, I want to just encourage us just to slow down for a minute. Uh, one thing that uh, some churches have said is like, hey, leave all your pain at the door. Let's kind of like come in and, you know, worship Jesus. As if we just sort of tuck this, this painful part of us away and come in and pretend like everything's okay. And, and that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about God meeting us in those places. And so I'm asking you not just to not leave them at the door, but to actually bring them to your attention right now. To bring to attention, in particular this morning, the areas where you feel a sense of disappointment or disillusionment. Let's sit on that for a moment. Let's feel those things. Let's pray that the God of grace would meet us in that space to give us hope today. So would you join me as we pray? Um, Even now, I encourage you, maybe just take a deep breath and remember that God is with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. And as you consider the presence of God, uh, just to even encourage you to think about where you feel disappointment. Where do you feel disillusionment setting into your life? Where do you feel this gap between what you hoped life would be, what you hoped family would be, what you hoped church would be, what you hoped job would be, what you hoped your health would be? a gap between what you hoped it would be and what it is. Where do you feel that dissonance? And now we pray, God, that you would meet us in this space, that you would help us to be a community in this season of Advent that would find in you, in your person, in your presence with us, but also in your promises, a hope that transcends our circumstances, a hope that transcends our experiences, a hope that actually enters into the deepest places of pain to give us something that cannot be shaken by the situations of this world, a hope that's rooted in the person and the work and the promises of God. And so would you fill us with an unshakable hope? Would you 
Fill us this morning with a thrill of hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, if you're anything like me, uh, as you kind of go through your days, uh, I, I have these moments where just song lyrics come into my mind. Maybe it's something I see, a sign on the road, or a person, or a phrase that somebody says, and all of a sudden these song lyrics just start flooding my mind. And so my kids get annoyed with me periodically because something will happen, it'll remind me of a song, and I'll be like, oh, let's listen to that song. And I'll be like, hey, Siri, play, you know, whatever. Hold on one second. Like, let me make sure Siri doesn't play, whatever. And, uh, and like, so he's like, hey, Siri, you know, play, play this, and they'll play the song. And, and it all sorts of different things, like the sort of genres that I listened to growing up are very, very eclectic. Everything from the Beatles to Nirvana to DMX and Eminem to cheesy Christian stuff in the 90s, like whatever. And like some lyric will come to my mind and I'll play it. Uh, and, if, and if I'm listening to a song, often what will happen is I'll be like, oh, that stop sign reminds me of this DMX song. And I'll be like, hey, Siri, uh, play this song. And it starts playing. I'm like, oh, hey, Siri, stop playing that song uh, in front of my kids. Um, <laughs> So, you know, like, because I realized I jammed to that song, I got pumped up to that song, I liked, I knew the lyrics to that song, but I never paid attention to the words of that song, clearly. Um, or, or maybe uh, in a kind of case of, or after case, I have these moments where I just start playing some song and I'll realize I've never, I've never stopped to consider what that song means. And I think that the kinds of songs that most fit into that category for me, more than any other, are Christmas and, Christmas and Advent hymns. Because I've grown up hearing them all the time. I grew up hearing them in department stores or playing on some record in the house or hear them in the car or on the radio, whatever it might be. And so I grew up very familiar with the lyrics of all of these famous Christmas hymns, these Advent hymns. And so I often find myself like struck by how profoundly meaningful these songs are. I remember it was almost 15 years ago, my wife and I lived in Chicago. I was in grad school at the time. And uh, I had a professor, my wife was out of town with some friends, and I had a professor who shot me an email and said, hey, Gary, you know, would you want to come over and have dinner with my family uh, this weekend? It'll give you something to do instead of pining away while your wife is gone. And I remember thinking, first, that's really kind. Uh, second, who says pining? Like, who, who says that? Well, I don't even know what that word means. And it struck me, as soon as I read that, the, the only time I had ever heard that word before is in the famous Christmas hymn, O Holy Night. Where it says, long lay the world in sin and error, pining. Pining. I thought, what does that even mean? And so I looked up, what does pining mean? And here's the dictionary definition. And it struck me so profoundly. To pine means to suffer a mental and physical decline, especially because of a broken heart. So my professor was saying, instead of suffering a mental and physical decline while your wife is away, come and have dinner with us. But it just kind of struck me, that, that phrase, and a sub-definition was it, or to pine for something means to miss and long for the return of something. To miss and long for the return of something. And I remember that, that struck me so significantly in that moment, because where I was in life, uh, I was in the middle of a season of life where I was studying nonstop. I was working multiple jobs just to try to pay the bills and stay on top of finances. I had this young family. We're figuring out marriage and life, and it felt hard. And in the middle of like all the things that it felt like needed to get done, I was losing sight of why it all mattered. I was losing sight of Jesus. I was losing sight of purpose. I was losing sight of meaning. I was losing hope. I was losing joy. I was, in a very real sense, beginning to pine. I was wasting away. And I was just getting up every day, doing the next thing that needed to be done, studying the next thing, doing the next thing, going to the next job, doing the next, one thing after another. And it felt like joy, meaning, 
purpose, hope was lost. And so that song just struck me, that word struck me 15 years ago so significantly. And it's like the whole hymn of O Holy Night like lit up. It just lit up. That first verse, long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared. And that word appearing is where we get the word advent, until he came. It says in the soul, like the inner self felt its worth. Something about the arrival of Jesus on the scene in human history like erupted in the soul and he felt the value and the treasure of the arrival of Jesus. And then the psalm says this, a thrill of hope. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. Because yonder, old school word for over there, uh, yonder uh, breaks, there in Christ breaks a new and a glorious morn, a new morning, like the dawn of a new day. Like the darkness has been weighing on you, been beating you down. There's a weariness, you're pining. And in the arrival of Jesus, like the dawn of a new day breaks in and it gives the soul a thrill of hope. And I love that line, a thrill of hope. I needed a thrill of hope. And it needed to be in something bigger than my circumstances. It needed to be something bigger than the things that can kind of like ebb and flow day in, day out. I needed a thrill of hope. And I think that's what the world needs right now. I think the world needs a thrill of hope. I think many of us in this world and many of us in this room feel a kind of disappointment with life, a disillusionment with life where you're living your life, you're going day in and day out and you're operating and maybe you're chasing joy and meaning in all these different places and it's not panning out or maybe you've stopped chasing. You've just kind of settled into mundane, boring existence. Like you get up, you do the thing, you you kind of walk through the day, you go to sleep and you find some means or mechanism to kind of numb yourself from the latent dissatisfaction that you feel day in and day out. And what you need and what Advent promises to give you is a thrill of hope. I love that phrase, a thrill of hope. And that's my prayer for us today. That today, as we look at God and who he's who he is and what he's done in this world, that your heart will be filled with a thrill of hope in the person and in the promises of Jesus. In the person and the promises of Jesus. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to unpack really, um, we're going to get into Psalm 130, but we're not going to exposit the whole thing. We take time in the summer to work through Psalms one after another. So we'll get to Psalm 130 in about two years. You know, maybe like, <laughs> seriously, probably like early summer 2023. Uh, we'll get to Psalm 130 and hopefully you'll forget all of these things. And uh, we can just re-preach this message at that point. Um, but what I want to look at today is, is primarily the first couple verses and then verses 5 and 6. And just look at this theme of, of hope. And this biblical idea of hope and where it comes from, we're going to see two things. Number one, disillusionment is a doorway to deeper hope. That the experience of disillusionment can be, for you, a doorway to a deeper kind of hope. A deeper hope. And secondly, that that deeper hope is found in the person and the promises of God. So disillusionment is a doorway to a deeper hope, and that deeper hope is a is found in the person and the promises of God. So open up your Bible if you closed it or flip to it in your phone, whatever you prefer. I'm a sucker for paper because uh, you can touch it and look at it and uh, you don't get notifications. That's cool. Um, Psalm 130. I'm going to look at these first couple words and I love how it starts. It, this, this phrase, my heart has jumped to Psalm 130 over and over and over again because of this first phrase. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the depths. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. 
Um, Psalm 130 is what they call a song of ascents. And what that means is the people of Israel, as they would approach Jerusalem and as they draw near to the temple, they'd be ascending towards Jerusalem, uphill, kind of like uh, topographically. And they'd go, kind of be, as they're working uphill, as they're going to the temple, they would sing these songs as they were coming up for various festivals and sacrificial um, kind of moments and rituals. And they would sing these songs. And this particular song of ascent was sung to actually meet the people in a place of deep disappointment and despair. And that could be different for different individuals, different families, but also something that would be felt by the nation as a whole in a lot of moments in their history where you felt an incredible sense of brokenness in this nation that had these incredible promises of God. And so enter into the kind of experience of an Israelite who has all of these promises that God has said, I've pulled you out of Egypt, I've redeemed you by the blood of the Lamb, I've brought you through the waters, and I'm going to establish in you and among you and through you a kingdom where I am your God and you are my people and we are in covenant relationship with one another, where you experience the joy of my presence and my grace and my mercy and my nearness and where you express my love and my justice in your nation and among your people and where you as a nation are a light to the other nations around you and they look at you with admiration and think, who must their God be to create this kind of a, a, a kingdom? Like, that's the promise. That's the expectation. That's what they hoped it would be. That's what they wanted it to be. And then their felt experience was injustice, pain, division, brokenness, idolatry, compromise. All the nations around them scoffed at them. They had experienced oppression by people group after people group, nation after nation, global power after global superpower. They were experiencing so much pain. And the pain between their expectation and their experience, it left to this experience of despair where they felt in the depths they felt in the pit they felt stuck and so they cry out of the depths my my heart cries to you lord pay attention to our experience out of the depths i cry to you the israelites understood that their experience of pain was most fundamentally rooted in their rebellion against god that God, this good king who had made them, had spoken over them the words of life, who had given them instructions, we call it the Ten Commandments or the Book of the Covenant or the Torah, had given them instructions about what life in his presence was, was supposed to look like, and they understood that they had turned from his reign. And that all of the pain that they experienced in their nation, that gap was caused by their rebellion against God. And Israel, in a very real sense, is a microcosm or a little picture of the human experience. Israel is this expression that the reason why we experience pain and brokenness in this world is because of humanity's rebellion against God. So you might look at your life and you might think I'm experiencing dissatisfaction and pain and the goal is not to isolate one thing you did that led to that. It's just to understand that the reason why your heart longs for love and justice and peace and righteousness is because you're made to experience that. But the reason why your experience in life falls short of that is because human, humanity has, we have turned away from the reign of God and we've been separated from his presence. And so even as a Christian, we live in this beautiful but broken world where we experience dissonance and tension and pain. And so the Israelites are crying out to God for mercy. Have mercy on us. Forgive us. If, if you don't forgive us, then we will never stand in your presence. We need your mercy. And so they're crying out to God in that place. But the felt experience for the Israelites, is an experience of despair, disappointment, and disillusionment. And so this psalm throughout history has met the people of God in moments of deep pain. Moments of deep pain. And, and the word disillusionment, I think, is, 
is a powerful word because it expresses kind of in the, in the definition of the word that we have this illusion that life in this age is supposed to be kind of like perfect. All the things we long for it to be. So to be disillusioned is to actually feel, feel this disappointment when life is not measuring up to what you expected it to be. Here's a, here's a definition of disillusionment. A feeling of disappointment resulting from the discovery that something is not as good as one believed it to be. I'm disappointed because this experience is not as good as I believed it to be. There's a, a man named John Cheever, who is a novelist and a journalist uh, from, the uh, yeah, from the 20th century, born in 1912, grew up through the Depression, sustenance living, struggled to make ends meet with his family. Uh, he became an author, kind of became a pretty prolif- uh, prolific writer, and started writing for The New Yorker and a bunch of novels. And, uh, and in time, he moved to New York City, again, kind of sustenance living until he began to make more money. And then in the ni- sort of 1950s, early 1950s, he moved out to the suburbs uh, of New York City. And this is during the sort of suburban sprawl. And so this is post-World War II, kind of get into the American history moment, right? Post-World War II, suburban sprawl, everybody's kind of like making money. The economy on the heels of World War II is beginning to kind of come back to life. As people are making money, they're moving to the suburbs. Many people are moving from the city centers to the suburbs to get more kind of like property, a bigger house, more room for their family. And this is where that kind of like... um, you know, uh, stereotypical kind of like American dream white picket fence like image came from, like getting the suburban home. And what John Cheever began to write about was over and over and over the sort of dissatisfied experience of the suburban life. That he was seeing all of these people around him that had this hope, like we're past the war, we've made it through, we're making money again, we're getting our house, we're establishing our family, things are coming together, and we have all this expectation that everything's gonna get better. And what he was watching around him is people perpetually dissatisfied. And in one of his writings, he said this. He said, the main emotion of the adult American who has all the advantages of wealth, education, and culture is disappointment. The main emotion of the adult American who has all the advantages of wealth, education, and culture is disappointment. And he wrote about that in almost all of his writings. Uh, There's a guy named Walker Percy Uh, who was another novelist who was reflecting on that line, and he would talk about in the 1980s this explosion of sort of technological advancement, the sort of advent of the personal computer. In 1983, January of 1983, Time Magazine named the, the computer the person of the year for 1982. First time a machine had ever been kind of nominated as like person of the year. It just was changing the the nature of the world. And all these expectations began to kind of erupt that Technological advancement and medical advancement would lead life to get better and better and better. And so humans in America began to feel this expectation that what life is going to give us is up here. And so Walker Percy in this book, Lost in the Cosmos, really starts talking about work, how work is dissatisfying. Marriage and family is dissatisfying. School is dissatisfying. Politics is dissatisfying. Church life is dissatisfying. Social life is dissatisfying. He's saying all these people have this expectation it's going to be amazing. Like life should get better and better and better as sort of the x-axis of time moves forward. The y-axis of feeling better about myself and my life should get better and better and better. Up and to the right, always. So people call this the myth of progress. Things should get better. And every time you have this experience of failure, setback, regret, brokenness, pain, it leads to this feeling of dissatisfaction. And as human beings, we struggle to know what to do with it. 
who struggled to know what to do with it. C.S. Lewis, if you get a chance, uh, if you've ever read Mere Christianity, it's an incredible read. If you don't like reading books, then will you read four pages for me? Uh, just four pages on hope in Mere Christianity. I'm going to quote them at length in a couple places. But this is C.S. Lewis talking about this experience of what you expect out of something and what you receive out of it. He says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There is something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and the scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. What Lewis is saying is when we kind of go into this world, marriage is a gift, family is a gift, the world is a gift, culture is a gift, vocation is a gift, hobbies and experiences, these are all gifts, but when we expect that they will give us something that will bring us this ultimate sense of hope and meaning and purpose where we're grasping at it that when we finally get the thing we longed for, it feels like sand through the fingers. Something is evading us. Like we're always missing, not quite there. And even in the best possible experiences of the closest kind of tastes of like a euphoric sense of joy like this, then all of a sudden that moment passes us by and you look back on that moment with nostalgia and this sense of loss and grief at that thing that you had that you no longer feel. And so you look back at the old photos of where your family used to be or you think about those college friends or you think about that job that you had or you think about X, Y, Z with a sense of nostalgia because this thing that even in the best moments slips through, and then you romanticize what it was because you have this longing wired within you for a sense of hope that keeps evading you. You keep missing it. And so you struggle to know what to do with it. So Lewis talks about in the chapter two ways that we tend to deal with this dissatisfaction. One he calls the fool's way, which the fool's way is essentially jumping from thing to thing, always hoping that the next thing will finally give it. So you jump from marriage to marriage, you jump from job to job, you jump from church to church, you jump from friend group to friend group, you jump from house to house, always thinking it's the next thing, it's the next thing. And the reason why he calls it the fool's way is because like, if you've lived for any period of time, we should know it doesn't work. But if we keep doing it, at some point, we're just fools. Like we're just fooling ourselves again and again and again, jumping from thing to thing to thing. So once you've finally hit that point that you're like, I know that none of these things will satisfy, then Lewis talks about that experience of disillusionment. He talks, talks about the way of the disillusioned, sensible man. There's a, there's a story that Dallas Willard, who is just a Christian formation writer, uh, that he talked about that I think resonates so deeply with this. I don't know if you've ever heard or seen about like greyhound races, right? Horse races, but with these fast dogs. Um, so greyhounds will be trained, and what they'll do is they'll chase this electric rabbit. And so they kind of open up the gates, and the greyhounds take off after the rabbit. And the rabbit's just zipping around. I mean, these greyhounds are fast. And they're running, and the rabbit's zipping around the tracks. And you can find videos about this online. Uh, there are times when the machine has broken, and the greyhounds catch the rabbit. And, uh, and it's incredibly 
like this feeding frenzy and then like really dissatisfying, right? When you expected this experience of like, finally, we got this thing that's going to be tasty and amazing and it's just this mechanical stuffed, dumb, you know, thing. Uh, stuffed animals for the kids in the room are beautiful gifts from God and we're so grateful for them. Um, as, you, as they catch up and they kind of tear apart this rabbit, it's like the, the experience of dissatisfaction. But that's what people get. It's like when you finally got the thing that you were longing for, you realize it's not what you hoped it would be. It's not what you hoped it would be. You caught the rabbit. Good for you. And in that experience, it leads to this sense of disillusionment. Disillusionment. So Lewis talks about that. That for the disillusioned person, you kind of settle into boring life. Work's going to be a bummer. Family's going to be so-so. Life's not going to have a ton of meaning. And you just kind of settle into sort of a mundane boring existence. And you wake up and you do what needs to be done to not fail the people nearest to you. And you get it done and you move on. You get it done. You move on. You've just settled into boring existence. And he says that's actually kind of more thoughtful than the fool's way. The fool's way is you chase, 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 chase and experience disappointment after this disappointment. But this other way is just this experience of just boredom, this humdrum life that you've just settled for. And if there is no resurrection, if there is no sense that the desires that we have within us can be satisfied and are designed to be satisfied, then it makes more sense as a way of living. But it's a way that leads to real disappointment and pain. And so I want to ask you this question is, where do you feel disappointment in your life? Where do you feel it? Is it family? Is it relationships? Is it in your job or in your health? Is it in your social life? Is it in your church? Is it in your own kind of like progress as a human being, what you hoped you'd get out of life, where you hoped you'd be? Where do you feel it? And then what are you doing with it? Are you taking the fool's way? The next thing, just a little more, a little, little more, a little further, another, another try with another object. Or the disillusioned way. I guess this is just life. Disappointing. Boring. Just do the next thing. Do the next thing. And let's numb those feelings of disappointment with some, you know, social medication of choice. And so you find some way to deal. Is there another way? There is another way. There is another way. That these longings within you are designed by God to be there, to point you to him. And so this is the second idea, and we'll see this in Psalm 130, that this deeper hope is found in the person and in the promises of God. I want you to see uh, in Psalm 130 what hope is, but it might be helpful to say what it's not. Biblical hope, I love what Richard shared, what Consuelo was talking about before as well. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking, not like I hope that the weather's nice tomorrow, which by the way, Colorado weather in December, we need the snow, moisture's good, but kind of dope. I mean, it's kind of great. Uh, I heard that it snowed this morning on the main island in Hawaii, and we're here in Colorado. It's like something, somebody got mixed up somewhere, you know, um, messed up the weather patterns a bit for us. Um, but I hope it's nice again tomorrow. Or I hope it snows or I hope we get some good powder in the mountains finally so it's not this, you know, whatever. And so I hope, I hope, wishful thinking. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is not also generic optimism. Like, I believe that this will work out good. And I like, I believe it will. You know, that's it's not generic optimism. Nor is it a baseless confidence that God is going to make all your dreams come true. 
Like as if God has promised to make all your dreams come true in life, like some Disney characterization of God, you know, the God that exists to make all your dreams come true. That's not what biblical hope is. Look at Psalm 130. The two Hebrew words that are used for hope are right here in verse 5, and I want you to see it. Verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord. That's this word, yachal. Can you say yachal? Yachal. You got to get that gutter. I just want to hear you try the guttural part. Just, it's just amusing. Um, yachal. Yachal is this biblical word for waiting. Richard nailed it. It's this biblical word for waiting. I'm, I'm waiting. My soul waits for the Lord. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. Yachal waits. And in his word, I hope. That word I hope is kava. Kava. And the word kava is more than kind of like passive waiting. Like a, it's, it's, a, it's an anticipation of a tension finding resolution. And so the word it comes from is this word for this word cord or a strand. And the idea is a, a tension. So you're hanging on, waiting for resolution. You're hanging on with this anticipation that if I hang on, this will finally and fully resolve. That the sort of pain and the tension will find a relief and a restoration. That I will be rescued from this moment. And so that's the sort of biblical idea is that it's a sort of waiting with confidence. It's waiting with confidence. Confidence in what? Right here in verse 5 and 6. Look at verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. That biblical hope is a confident waiting in the person or on the person and the promises of God. It's a waiting with confidence in the person and in the promises of God. Not waiting for our situation to change, not waiting for our scenario, or not waiting for that next opportunity. It is a waiting, a confident expectation, a confident waiting, a hanging on, believing that this tension I feel is resolved in the person and the promises of God. In the experience right here, right now, in the person of God, and in the promises, that which he has promised to bring to fruition, to come to fulfillment. And so that concept of the person and promises is something that I think for us as a people meets us with such profound significance right here and right now. I remember when Psalm 130 first kind of erupted on the scene of my life with so much power. It was a little over 12 years ago. My wife was pregnant with our first child. We had been praying for multiple years to be pregnant. We had finally got pregnant. It was an incredible answer to prayer. We were overjoyed. And at 28 weeks, she went into preterm labor and, uh, and went to the hospital and ended up on bed rest for, in the hospital for over two months. And, uh, and in that period, over the first few days, it became very clear that our, our baby that we've been hoping for and waiting for and praying for might not make it through this. And it was a scary, scary thought. All this excitement that had been built up for years, all this dreaming and hoping about what life would be and this thing that we so desperately wanted and this answer to prayer and as you're watching this baby develop in the womb and looking at all the ultrasound pictures and you're kind of like beginning to dream, now all of a sudden it's this, this potential that this is going to be lost. And Psalm 130 erupted into my heart, like out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the depths. And this line here struck me. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word, I hope. And I remember in that season, a friend, a lady from our church had reached out to us and, and told me this, this thought, gave me this thought that I thought has just been pr- profound for me for the rest of my life when I'm struggling with anxiety about the future. And she said to me, God is not in the business of dealing out grace for your imagined future. 
You imagine a future. You are here in the present and you imagine this future. He's not in the business of meeting you in your imagined future with his grace in the way that he would meet you in whatever future eventually comes. Whatever future eventually comes, the God of grace will be there. But you're imagining some future and you can't imagine how God's grace will meet you. And so you're imagining the future without God's grace. And that, of course, is going to lead you to fear. Of course, it's going to lead you to anxiety. Of course, it's going to lead you to these despairing thoughts of what will happen if, what will happen, what will life be like if we lose this thing, this child, this one we've been hoping for. And I remember the thought that crystallized in my mind that the surest thing about tomorrow is that the God of grace will be there. The most certain thing about tomorrow or next week or next month, or one year from now, or five years from now, or three decades from now, the most certain thing is that the God of grace will be there. And his grace will be sufficient. His grace will be enough. His presence will be there no matter what that future is. If all your dreams come true, it will be the God of grace that will satisfy your soul, not the fulfillment of your dreams. If all your dreams shatter and you live with regrets and failure and all these unmet expectations, the God of grace will be there meeting you in that place with his grace and it will be enough. It will be sufficient. And when you can learn to hope in the person of God here and now and that the person of God will never leave me and he will never forsake me and he will always be here and he will always be enough, you are free. You are free from having to live with all of these attachments. It doesn't mean you're free from wanting things or desiring things or hoping in certain outcomes or situations. That's okay. But it's not the foundation of your hope. Biblical hope is waiting on the person of God, believing that his presence is enough. But it's also waiting on the promises of God. That God has actually entered into human history to give us his presence, but he's also made promises about what he is doing in the world and what he will do. And those promises aren't, again, to make all your dreams come true. They're not for that promotion. They're not that your longings for your family or your longings for where you're going to live or what your life's going to look like or how your health's going to be. They're not promises like that. He meets us in these moments with incredible gifts of his grace to show you his power and his goodness, and he does that. And there are also times where he meets you in this gap and this pain and this tension to show you his sufficiency, but also to remind you that your hope is in him and in his promises. So what has he promised? He's promised things like, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Never. People might leave you. Relationships might come and go. Things might fail you. There might be difficulty. Even the prospect of death, this inevitable thing that will come, does not in any way in any way hinder the promise of God. He will be with us always. Even in death, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, to be with him. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He's also promised that even in the midst of pain, he's working to produce something in us that is more valuable than gold or silver or anything you can accumulate or accomplish in this life. That when he produces a deeper, richer faith within us, there is a joy And resilience as we learn what it truly means to be human, which is not somebody who accumulates more and more things or has life go all the ways we want it to go, but it's a person who walks with this incredible faith in the presence of God. And in the midst of suffering, he is producing deeper faith within you. That doesn't make the suffering not painful. It just gives suffering meaning. He's producing something. He's actively working in the middle of those painful moments to deepen something within you. He's promised that even the suffering in this world will feel light and momentary, both in terms of weight and time, compared to the eternal 
weight of glory that's being prepared for us. That these painful things that we're experiencing now are producing something that will feel so superior, so much more than the pain that we've experienced that'll feel like these pains and these trials produced in us the ability to experience something so much more significant that it makes it feel nearly insignificant. Doesn't mean in the moment it feels that way, but to believe that God is doing something in that because he promised he is. And he promised that he's coming again. He's coming again to make all things new and he will wipe away every tear that has been shed. And sin will be no more and death will be no more and all things will be made new. These are things that he's promised. And when you can hope that God is with me right here, right now, and all these experiences and all my dissatisfaction and all my disillusionment and all the pain I've felt and all the trials I'm facing and all of my uncertainty about the future, God is with me and he has made promises. And when you can hold on tight, hope, in those realities, the person of God and the promises of God for the future, which he has given us ample evidence in his workings throughout history that he will do and can do. We look back at the past, we see his faithfulness, we stand in the tension of the present, and we hold on to the hope of God's presence and God's promises. And when you do that, you can face all kinds of challenges, and you can experience life in a very challenging world with hope. With joy, with meaning, you don't have to jump from thing to thing trying to squeeze out of every object all the things that you hope that life will give you. I have to squeeze out of my marriage all of my longing for a kind of secure affection. If you try to do that with your spouse, you will will be severely disappointed. If your spouse tries to do that with you, they'll be severely disappointed. If you try to squeeze out of your family all the longings for like healthy community, you will be severely disappointed. There are tastes of it, good tastes of it. If you try to squeeze out of your job all your sense of meaning, you'll be disappointed. If you try to squeeze out of this culture all the experiences of like joy and all the comforts and all the kind of activities and all the adventures, and you try to squeeze out of it, you're going to find yourself left wanting. But if you go to those same things, you go to marriage, family, friendship, social life, work, um, recreation, culture, with a sense of God is my hope, then you can walk into those spaces and you can appreciate the goodness of what those, those things are. You can taste and see the goodness of God in the middle of them. You can enjoy your family. You can enjoy marriage. You can enjoy friendship. You can enjoy your job. You can enjoy culture. You can enjoy recreation. You can enjoy food and drink. Because your hope isn't ultimately in them. You're not trying to get them to give you something that they can never give you. And then you're free to live in this life with a real sense of resilience with a real sense of joy. And that's what Jesus came. His advent is all about giving us that experience of joy in him. He's reconciling us to the presence of God. Jesus entered into human history, entered into the brokenness and the tension of this world. And he began proclaiming good news about a kingdom, the kingdom that your soul longs for. And he taught that he's bringing this kingdom and he's bringing it to fulfillment and he gives us tastes of the kingdom through his resurrection power and his ability to heal and love and forgive and establish justice in a new kind of community. And he gave us tastes of that in his life. And then he laid his life down on the cross to forgive us of our rebellion, that fundamental issue that led to the brokenness in the world. He shed his blood, not merely to forgive us, but to cleanse us so we could be those who actually have the presence of God dwelling within us the Holy Spirit, like these new kinds of temples where God is with us as these cleansed beings that we've received mercy and grace and now we get to experience the presence of God right now, today. You can like talk to him. You can cry out to him. You can thank him. You can complain to him. 
You can ask him for things. You can just be silent and enjoy his presence. You can learn to trust him. You can let him speak to you. The presence of God right here, right now, secured in the death of Jesus. And on the third day, Christ rose again, showing his ability to redeem the most broken things in this world. His power to restore death itself, which gives us the hope that we live in an age where resurrection is possible. Like we live in a world where dead things can be made alive, broken things can be healed, divided things can be mended. We live in that kind of a world. And so you can stand on your tiptoes like with a sense of like excitement about what God's going to do without it being giddy, naive optimism that all the things are going to work out the way you want. So you can have joy. You can enjoy the things in this life and you can engage in them with a sense of anticipation and hope and purpose and meaning as you go to your job, as you engage in your family, as you experience dissatisfaction and frustration. You can experience these things as human beings that are filled with hope and that would be a beautiful light for the world to see. I want to read to you in closing this last line from the chapter on hope from Lewis. This sort of summarizes for me what is for me kind of a mission statement for my own life. And I think it's, I think it's powerful. And so I'm going to read a semi-extended quote. I want you to track with Lewis. This is the third way, what he calls the Christian way of dealing with those dissatisfactions. The Christian says, creatures are not born with desires, unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's a such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's a such thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's a such thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it and to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. This is the word of C.S. Lewis. Thanks be to God. Uh, this is a good word. This is a good word. From C.S. Lewis, uh, as we live in this and learn to hope in the person and the promise of God and these things that we long for, we can enjoy the, the experience of them and the tastes of them, knowing that they're just an echo. And those echoes were meant to arouse in us a passion for the kingdom of God, a kingdom that we will only fully experience when Christ comes again and makes all things new. And so you can live now with a sense of joy and resilience and hope and purpose and meaning while we wait for Christ to come again of that second advent and make all things new. And so would you join me as we pray that God would do that among us. Jesus, we ask you now for your grace and your mercy. Would you help us to be a people who hope in you and in your presence and in your promises and you fill us with joy, with confidence, with meaning. And would you help us as we learn to hope in you, as we turn to you in the, in the moments of our dissatisfaction as we see our disillusionment as a doorway to a deeper kind of hope, a hope in you, would you cause that hope to shine like light for the world to see? Now, here's a people that 
are facing the hard things in life. Here's the people that aren't ignoring the pain and the brokenness and the failures and the mistakes and the regrets. Here's the people that are honest about suffering and they still have hope. They still have hope. They still live with joy. Would you help us to be that kind of people and would the, with the power of your presence among us and with the goodness of your promises sustain us and create in us a resilient faith that would shine for the world to see. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.